Good morning, everybody. Uh, I'm Claire Villarreal. I'm one of the senior students here at Don Mountain. Ann and Harvey asked me to say something on the topic of impermanence. And if you know me, you probably know that I've been a little obsessed with reincarnation and the death process and like that sort of gross level of impermanence for at least like 10 years now. Um, so I thought a lot about transition and I kind of wanted to just start out by sharing the stages of my own relationship with these teachings on impermanence because when I was like a baby Buddhist, I was like maybe 20 and I first started getting into the Dharma and there was always this like emphasis on death and impermanence and I was like, oh, <laughs> like why do we have to start with this? Oh. <laughs> I mean, when you're 20, I think it's hard to take in, you know, the reality of impermanence, the reality of change the reality that the way you are is not stable and that you don't ever, I hope I'm not, this is not like a spoiler alert, I don't think, cause like I don't see anybody here who's 20. I mean, there's like somebody who's a lot less than 20. Oh my bad, except for Selwa. Uh, <laughs> anyway, spoiler alert, you might wanna just do this for a couple seconds. Um, you never arrive at a place where you're done. That's That's been what I've realized, like coming up on 42 now, like, I just had this idea that I would arrive at a place where I was like, this is my mature adult self. And um, <laughs> most of y'all are laughing. <laughs> that hasn't happened. <laughs> and I think there's kind of, you know, so my, my sense maybe coming into my relationship with these Buddhist teachings on impermanence was that like first you're a child and there's a lot of growth and then you're sort of like a young adult and then you find your place in the world and you're just like there and then you die. And <laughs> unless you get hit by a truck or something, which at the age of 20 sounds extremely implausible. You're just like, no, I'm here. This is what I'm gonna do. I'm going to Tibet next semester. What are you doing? Um, so I think I came into these teachings on impermanence with that sort of sense of it, you know, that there are these big blocky chunks of time and there's like, now I am a child, now I am an adult. Um, and then you kind of are moving from one blocky thing to the next blocky thing. And to be honest, I think even now I have that sense of, you know, impermanence. And even if we're talking about the death and rebirth process, which is like a big deal in Tibetan Buddhism, I think it's easy to feel like, <coughs> you know, here's me, here's Claire, I have like a social security number and I exist and then I'm gonna die and that's not gonna exist anymore and then a new version is gonna like, boop, like pop up somehow. And I think actually, so this kind of opens to a later phase of my relationship with these teachings on death and impermanence. There's, there's a tremendous amount of hope in the Buddhist teachings on impermanence because it's actually not just saying like, oh, you think you're so real? Someday you're gonna die, sit with that. You know, like there is that. But even in that teaching, I've come to realize there's a lot of like hope and a lot of positivity because what we think of as ourselves, you know, this sort of like blocky, real me or you or Don Mountain, for instance, it actually never existed in the first place. And I think for me, that kind of helps to soften up that harsh edge of the teachings on death and impermanence, that it's not just about kind of sitting around, becoming gloomy, saying as many prayers as possible so you can end up in a better rebirth next time, which is I think how I kind of took it in the, in the beginning. 
I really started to see like, well, if I were real, I would be stuck as a neurotic Western white woman forever. And then I would die and then I'd be someone else probably neurotic still. And like, so then I, I came to see, you know, the positivity of these teachings on impermanence as like, it's not just that my ordinary sense of self refers to a thing that I think of as permanent, but it's actually impermanent. Like that ordinary sense of self, I can start perforating it now. There's all this like gunk that is impermanent. And if you peel that away, you land on something that's not. And the Buddhist tradition in general is very reluctant to put words around that thing that is not, or it's not even a thing, but like that which is not subject to change. Yeah, so like even trying to say this, like I feel kind of like I'm committing the cardinal sin of, of Buddhism, which is trying to like put words on the ultimate. But, um, you know, there's that sense, especially if you read teachings on the death process and the rebirth process, there's that sense that as, you know, obviously the body dies, right? Like we stop moving, we stop breathing, blood stops flowing, we physically die. And then even the levels of our mind begin to melt away. So everything that we thought was us slowly but surely drops off. And Tibetan Buddhist tradition says that during that process of everything dropping off, there's a moment of pure whatever you want to call it is, like reality itself. Like we're finally, all the veils to that have fallen off by accident, but they've fallen off. And we have a moment. And for some of us, you know, if we've really trained in like resting in what is as ultimate as, as we can experience, it may not be just a moment. It may be a few moments. It may even be a couple of days that we just get to rest in like what's real. Like put down all the burdens of this lifetime, like taking off a backpack full of rocks and just kind of sit there and go, wow, what's this? Except we don't have, you know, verbal thoughts at that moment probably I would assume but that's my closest analog like wow so like I really came to recognize that sense of optimism in these teachings on impermanence and death and rebirth and I think mostly what I what I've been thinking about these days in terms of impermanence um, I think it's a little it's a little different from either of those two previous takes on it. Nowadays, I can really see um, something else behind that teaching on impermanence, too. It really has to do with this idea of the bardo, which is another really important um, term in Tibetan Buddhism. And it, the literal meaning of the word bardo just means like in between. And this idea of the bardo is that if you've heard it colloquially, well, then A, you're probably a Tibetan Buddhist nerd like me, um, but if you've heard this term bardo, people usually use it to refer to the period between the end of one life and the beginning of the next life. So it's kind of this period where your previous identity has been stripped away and you're very sensitive, you're in a very subtle form, it's supposed to be a really excellent time for realizing what's reality because all this other gunk has like fallen off, you know, so you're like optimizing an accident basically. We can't with our ordinary mind like decide to take off our ordinary mind. That, that just doesn't, it's not an option really. So like at the time of death, it sort of like it falls off. 
like a like a I don't know a snake. Well, it's its skin doesn't really fall off, but if you imagine a snake that's like, whoop, my skin fell off. Um, it's sort of like that. That's how I imagine it. Um, a moment where you find yourself accidentally in the most pristine, real, unobstructed state of, I can't even say mind, something beyond ordinary mind, you find yourself there and you have a moment to take advantage of it. So there are different types of bardos that are described in um, classical teachings on this. So there, it can be, they can be categorized in different ways, like four bardos, six bardos, three bardos, et cetera, et cetera. But like the, the division that I want to talk about now is basically there's a bardo of life. So like from the time that this life begins, from the time that you're conceived and you begin to grow, all the way through the end of this lifetime, that is a bardo. It's a space between a birth and a death. And we don't tend to think of life in that way. We tend to think of like, this is real, um, and then at some point it ends. And the teaching, by framing life itself as a bardo, it really, to me, it, it undermines that sense of like, solidity and stability and um, you know here I am I am going to make the most of this lifetime to me it, it makes it feel much more like a waterfall maybe where it's just like something kind of splashing down rocks and tumbling out and becoming like it's a constant process of becoming there's not a point where you've landed or where that waterfall freezes up and this is its unchanging state um, and I think in that sense, the teachings on impermanence feel different because they're not about this is you and then you end. They're about you're a constantly unfolding something that's actually beyond words and can you, can you learn to make peace with the unfolding nature of your life? So there's the bardo of life. There's also the bardo of dream. So every time that you fall asleep, you're entering a little space between waking moments, and anything can happen. Um, there's also the bardo of meditation. So, and the technical definition of the bardo of meditation is that you're in a deep, non-conceptual state, so probably most of us experience that bardo of meditation, if we're lucky, a couple of moments during any given meditation session. But it's kind of a moment when your ordinary mind has stopped defining your reality, just for a second, split second even, and you just have a moment in between. What is there? And a lot of people would want to say, well, there's nothing, or there's a space, or there's a whatever. But like, I think what we're glimpsing in that moment, however tiny, however like not fully grasped or understood it might be, we understand something more real about ourselves than we do in our waking life. There's something that releases its grasp. So there's that bardo of, of meditation. Um, <coughs> and to me, framing basically any moment of our existence as part of some bardo, to me, that's kind of where I'm sitting with, with um, the whole teaching on impermanence these days. It undermines that sense of solidity and stability that's very easy to fall into. It undermines the sense that tomorrow is going to be the same as today. Next week is going to be the same as this week. Next month is going to be the same as this month. You know, I think it's really easy to feel that when you walk into this room and if 
you're the online audience, you can't see this, but like, this is what I noticed first as a broadcast team member, like the entire broadcast station, it's gone. My God, what are we even gonna do? So like the, the temple that existed, was that temple the broadcast station? Was the temple the Tonkas that are gone? Was that temple our teacher's thrones that are gonna be gone soon? Was the temple Adam Rinpoche's throne? Like, it's been changing the whole time. And I didn't usually notice. Somebody moves the Tonka slightly. Is the temple gone? No, but it's different. And this is my third time in a, in a different Don Mountain space. Like I came when we were on, um, well, on Bissonette actually in Rice Village in a little like upstairs apartment above a clinic or something. And, and I remember when they moved out of that space just thinking like, but that's Don Mountain, how can they leave that behind? And then we moved into our temple on Richmond and my God, it was beautiful. It was so gorgeous. My timing was better then because I showed up for grad school right after everybody had moved and painted. And I was like, wow, y'all did a great job. Glad I wasn't here for that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and there was just that sense of like, oh, now this is Don Mountain. And then we moved in here and it was so much bigger and it gave us more capabilities to do more things. And it was like, well, now this is Don Mountain. So for those of y'all who have never seen another Don Mountain and it feels like this is Don Mountain and people are taking it apart, don't worry, there's gonna be another Don Mountain. And another one until eventually there's not a Don Mountain because that's part of impermanence too. And eventually there won't be United States and eventually the Buddha Dharma will disappear and eventually our Earth's sun will blow up. So, you know, if you look out on a long enough time scale, moving from one place to another, <coughs> transitioning to another stage of life, having a birthday, all of those are markers for impermanence, but they're not actually the impermanence itself. They're just the moments that we wake up to it. Um, so, excuse me, we'll be in an an obviously Bardo-like, impermanent, in-between space for a while at the Institute for Spirituality and Health. And I'd like to think that this is, again, an opportunity in between sort of one shell and another shell, we're a very tender little creature. I mean, all of us collectively as Don Mountain. And Tibetan Buddhism tells us that those bardos are places of tremendous spiritual opportunity. So I think, for me anyway, I just have to acknowledge that it's sad to see this place dismantled where we've had amazing teachings, we've solidified good friendships. Um, a lot of cool stuff has happened here and it's sad to leave it. And I think, I think I've gone through phases of experiencing the sadness of impermanence and experiencing the optimism, and now I think I'm better able to hold both. It is sad, and it's hopeful. To have a new beginning, the old thing has to die. It has to go in that temporal sequence, but even as the old thing is dying, the seeds of the new thing have already been planted. Um, and obviously the teachings in Tibetan Buddhism about sort of the death process, reincarnation, the bardo period in between, they're about an individual and their mental continuum. But I think it applies to us all collectively too, that we're in this space, 
really together. And that in a way, there's sort of an emergent entity that is Dawn Mountain that arises from the love that all of us have for these teachings, for our lamas, for each other. And um, yeah, so today is a bittersweet day as we take apart our temple. And we're going to be homeless for a little while. That's mostly what I wanted to share. But the last thing I wanted to say is that to me, I've been thinking about refuge a lot. This idea of um, what it means to have an orientation toward that which is deepest and most real in our lives. The sort of classical way that you like become Buddhist is you take refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I think what I've been recognizing here more and more recently is that, and of course, like this is something that Tibetan Buddhism teaches from like the time that you start learning about refuge. It's just taken me about 20 years to really start to understand this. They say that ultimately, you're your own refuge. Like the whole point of d bowing down to a Buddha statue, if you feel like doing that, is that you can recognize in that image of the Buddha something you haven't yet seen in yourself. And for some of us, it might be completely blind faith that that even exists in us. You know, we might like, I mean, I've spent probably 20 years bowing down and thinking like, yeah, but not me. Like, maybe everyone else is going to actually become a Buddha someday, but they haven't seen the inside of my mind. I might be the only one left here after everyone else is a Buddha. But I think, really, the whole point of this teaching on refuge is that there is something that is real about us. There is something in all this stuff that's changing, all this stuff that's unfolding, the shifting of our own identity, the way we understand ourselves. Like... That's actually, at the end of the day, not us. Like, all that stuff that can drop away, it's not what's real now. And to me, that's kind of what I've been looking at as, as a teaching on refuge that's connecting us to what is not changing. Does that make sense? You know, the Muslims have this saying, there is no God but God. Uh, that's the first part of their confession of faith. And I think, like I've talked about this before, but to me, when you apply that in terms of refuge, like there is no refuge but what is ultimate, it kind of shows me what I usually take refuge in. Like last night, I took refuge in Harry Potter. It's the fourth book, Goblet of Fire. I just started reading again. Love that book. Um, but I read it because I just needed to turn my mind off. Where do I go when I just need to turn my mind off? I go to Harry Potter. <laughs> Someone else might go to like TV or alcohol, whatever. Um, and I think, you know, how many of us actually take refuge in our phone? Like if, if I took refuge in my own true nature, the way I took refuge in my phone and like before I leave anywhere, I just have to like unzip my bag and just touch it and make sure it's there. <laughs> I, I'd be a freaking Buddha already. I'd be like, hey, y'all, I'm levitating today because I can We'd be reminding ourselves of it all the time. And, you know, I think that's the purpose of refuge is, like, how permanent is anything you see on Facebook or Twitter or, like, I don't know why. I think I'm masochistic, but I've just been checking my news feed, like, obsessively, especially these past few days, the whole, like, you know, Supreme Court hearings and whatnot. Like, it's, in, like, I enjoy tormenting myself. How permanent is that, y'all? Like, 500 years from now, I'll probably be an ant or something still trying to realize my Buddha nature, 
it won't have mattered at all. Like, what if I were spending that time reminding myself who I am? But it's so easy. I mean, we're always looking for refuge outside ourselves. That's why we have Buddha images. I mean, they're competing with cell phones, so like, <laughs> that's tough. <laughs> but I think sometimes, you know, especially people who are a little bit like burned by religion and they see these images outside ourselves and they see people like bowing down to them or showing signs of respect to them. I mean, I'm bowing down to my phone every time I take it out and I check the news or my Facebook feed or whatever. And that is taking refuge in something that is not ultimate. So, you know, I think that that teaching on impermanence, especially if you kind of weave it into that teaching on refuge, it's all about noticing, you know, who are you from one moment to the next? What's real about you? Is there something you can find that doesn't change? Like meditation can be the laboratory in which you test impermanence in your own mind. You sit down and you breathe in. Are you breathing in forever? How long does that in-breath last? Are you breathing out forever? How long does that last? Like any given thought that you have, how long does that last? I mean, really, like one time, y'all probably heard this story before, but one time I was on retreat and I became obsessed with the idea of sushi. And for like probably an hour, I could not stop thinking about sushi. That's, that's, that's unpleasant. But <laughs> sooner or later, I was like, oh my God, I got distracted by something that wasn't sushi. Yes. I'm just inviting you when we sit down and we do our meditation, if you feel like it, use it as a laboratory. Are your thoughts you? How long do they last? Is your body you? How long does any bodily sensation last? Um, are your, is your mental consciousness you? How long does any given you know, image stay the same? If you enjoyed this teaching, please visit our website, dawnmountain.org, to subscribe to this course and find other great Dharma offerings. May all beings always have happiness in its causes. May all beings always be free of pain in its causes.